I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. If we don't rely on the past, what else do we have for guidance? <laughs> what other compass heading do we have other than the past? And there's not much. You know, it seems to be one of those moments where we're all having to reflect on what we're doing and what the world is looking like and, and what should we be doing. I recently sat down with two of the greatest living historians, Margaret McMillan and John Lewis Gaddis, to discuss how history does and does not shed light on challenges in the present. We talked about everything from why leaders repeat mistakes to why Versailles and Munich are the most overused analogies in foreign policy. The conversation was part of the Foreign Affairs Centennial series, which marks our 100th birthday. We wanted to bring this discussion to you as a bonus episode. We'll be back in September with new episodes of the Foreign Affairs Interview. John and Margaret, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. John, let me start with you because you've done so much work thinking about how we bring history into policy and into grand strategy. And as you've cautioned many times, there are good ways to do that and bad ways to do that. There are risks that come with it. But thinking at a broad level, what is the right way to bring history into decisions now? What is the right way to bring it into our understanding of the present? And how do we avoid the pitfalls that come with that effort? Well, there are all kinds of pitfalls, Dan, because policymakers have other things than history on their mind. They're confronting crises, as we know, and they spend most of their time on that. But when they do think about history, I think they think about it in terms of periods, topics, World War I, the Cold War, the Civil War. There's a kind of a compartmentalization in how busy people think about history which I think is somewhat misleading because history does not occur in compartments. History is a stream. History is actually maybe several streams intersecting with one another. And so the effects of one conflict never completely leave you. As Margaret's book suggests, conflict made us, history makes us. And so some awareness of how leftovers, hangovers from one period can affect what's going on in this period. Just to mention one example, which I suspect we'll come back to, the whole question of the formation of NATO in the Cold War and the beneficial effects that NATO is almost universally seen to have had in the Cold War. Those lessons spilled over into the post-Cold War period. And so without very much thought given to the matter, the assumption was that uh, NATO would continue to have stabilizing effects on international relations. But nobody quite thought about what would happen if you continued to expand NATO in the direction of the Russians, or what would happen if the Russians reverted to the kind of leader they've had throughout most of their history, a nervous autocrat. And here we are today with a new crisis, a dangerous crisis, perhaps a point of punctuation in history. I think we will say the post-Cold War era began in 1991, has just ended with the invasion of Ukraine, and we will be into something else. But what we are into now is still going to be the product of the Cold War, and that in turn, of course, was the product of the World War. And so everything traces back ultimately, as you've heard me say before, Ben, to the Big Bang. We will certainly return to some of those questions about where we are now and to NATO expansion as well. But Margaret, I want to linger first on some of those more historically distant incidents and to draw you out on the extent to which we should see meaningful lessons or parallels, perhaps scary parallels in them. And let's start with the run-up to World War I. This has been often cited in 
certainly in recent months since the war in Ukraine started, but even going back further as people have looked at the array of powers and anxieties and and tensions today, there is often a warning that we are at a, a moment just like the one in 1914. To what extent do you see that parallel is there? And to the extent it is true, what lessons should we draw from it? I think as long as we don't see the parallel as an exact one, we can learn from it. The danger in looking back to history, of course, is that we tend to look too much for lessons. We want something that will give us clear guidance for the present and the future, and that can become a trap. You know, the use of analogies in thinking about the world can help us think about it, but can also become a trap because we then start to think about the world in a certain way. And I think with the First World War, because it provides the foundation so much for so much of international relations and so much international relations theory actually looks back at the First World War and tries to understand how it came about. What I think it can do is give us a warning, give us a warning that things might go badly wrong when we're not expecting it, give us a warning that we need to look out for things that perhaps we aren't taking seriously enough. The example of the expansion of NATO, I think, is a really good one that we I think didn't recognize enough how it might be seen from the other side, how it might be perceived from Russia, particularly, as John Gaddis said, when you have a neurotic dictator in charge, I'm not quoting you exactly, but you know, someone who is uncertain and, and unsure of his own position in Russian society and of Russia's position in the world. And so I think we should use history with caution, but I think we need it because it can open our imaginations, it can open our minds to possibilities, and it can help us, I think, which is very important to formulate questions. And so with the period before the First World War, we can look at this extremely powerful, self-confident, apparently, continent of Europe, which dominated most of the world. And one of the big questions, of course, why did it go so badly wrong? Why did it stumble into war in 1914? What should they have been looking at at the time? And what might we learn from that? And I think what we perhaps can learn from the First World War is the power of ideas, the power of emotions. You know, a lot of Europeans thought it simply wasn't rational to have another war in 1914. They thought Europe had moved beyond it. And I think a lot of the Western world had thought that as well until the war in Ukraine started. This wasn't something we were going to do again. It, it just didn't make sense. And I think we need to take into account things that are very difficult to measure. And perhaps that's what looking at the origins of the First World War can do. And I think it can also remind us that sometimes people in positions of great power make mistakes. And I think it's still possible the First World War could have been avoided. I don't think it was inevitable then I think we should be really careful when we look at the First World War and, and look at our own situation and understand how easily mistakes and misassumptions and, and assumptions about what the other side is up to can be made. Yeah, your point about the assumption of rationalism that we often bring to these discussions is particularly resonant when I think back to some of the arguments we we're all having and the run up to the war in Ukraine and many of us in the West just struggling to understand how this could look rational from Putin's perspective. But Margaret, let me stick with you and jump forward to history a bit later on. Two of probably the most abused analogies in foreign policy debate are Versailles and Munich, and they point in somewhat different directions. You know, Versailles is often held up as an example of why not to be overly punitive and punishing our enemies and not taking into account some of those emotional factors that you cited. And Munich is, of course, the example of why appeasement is so dangerous. To what extent do you see those analogies as useful or dangerous in debates about policy now? And to pick up on some of the points you made about the use and dangers of analogies in your last answer, how should we incorporate those two analogies, those two historical episodes into analysis now? I think we should think about them, but not assume that they are set. I mean, I think one of the things that is still very much debated is what the treaties at the end of the First World War meant. What did the Paris peace settlements actually mean? And was it possible? And I think increasingly historians are arguing that it was possible that a lasting peace could have been built 
that the League of Nations could have been a useful international organization, and, and it was in some ways. And I think we are looking much more at the 1920s and saying, you know, it wasn't foreordained that Europe would go to war. A number of things had to happen to make that possible. And I think it's always dangerous to assume that things moved inexorably towards a final conclusion. There was a lot of hope in the mid-1920s, up, right up until 1929, that the world was getting better. It was more stable. Germany was coming back into the international order. Soviet Russia was beginning to, in its own fitful way, take part in the international order. And so I think there was a possibility of peace then. And I think one of the things that it reminds us is just how difficult it is to make peace and, and how people who make war don't spend enough time thinking about how they make the peace that comes at the end of the war. The Munich analogy, again, I think we're rethinking it, and it's a matter of much debate, but I think a lot of people would argue, or arguing at the moment, that it wasn't a bad attempt in itself. It was just that the Western powers trusted Hitler much too long, that they misunderstood the nature of the man and the nature of his will. I think it was a very strong will to go to war. I mean, I think he was determined on war, and they didn't really understand that. I mean, after Munich, Hitler was actually very angry and felt it was his greatest defeat and was horrified that the German people seemed to welcome the avoidance of war. He gave orders to Goebbels that he must really get to work and stir up the proper warlike spirit among the Germans. And so I think Munich, there's nothing wrong with trying to understand your enemy and deal with your enemy and, and try to, if you can, accommodate your enemy's concerns. In, in a way, I think that's what containment was about. You know, we call it containment, but in some ways it was an element of appeasement as well. So I think, you know, again, it's the danger of analogies. They can be very helpful, but when you get too rigid and when you simply apply it like a sort of cookie cutter and say, this is just like Munich, or this is just like period at the end of the Second World War, or this is just like the First World War, then we get into trouble. Yeah, I'm often struck in hearing the way these things are invoked in policy conversations and how crude an understanding policymakers often have of the events, the kind of, you know, debate among historians becomes much more complicated than the mythologies of these incidents hold, but policymakers are stuck in a kind of crude, almost, you know, the middle school level version of them. John, jumping ahead to containment, which mm -hmm. Margaret mentioned, you know, there's been endless conversation in the last few years about whether we are or not in a new Cold War, whether calling the relationship with China and to probably less agree with Russia, calling it a Cold War is in fact useful or misleading. You and Hal Brands wrote in, in FA last year that we should move past this debate and start to learn what lessons we can instead of getting caught in this kind of, you know, semantic battle about whether this is exactly like or unlike the Soviet-American clash. As you look at the lessons for American policy and American strategy through the Cold War, what would you pull out that would be especially relevant to decision-making now? Well, I would, first of all, build on what Margaret was saying in response to your last question, Dan. In a way, you can see containment as a balancing act between the temptations of vengeance, a hard peace on the one hand, and those of appeasement, of rational response to legitimate grievances, on the other hand. I think Kennan saw those as extremes to be avoided and saw policy as somehow balancing, walking that tightrope. And I think the idea of containment was that it was neither war nor appeasement, but it was a long strategy that sought to take advantage of other forces that were there, not the least of which was the passage of time, which would itself be an ally, because ultimately he believed the internal contradictions in the Soviet system would cause the Russians themselves to see the logic of accommodation rather than confrontation with the West. And I think that insight that history is more often a balancing act, a tightrope walking act, than one thing or another is very useful for students. 
because they want to have clear understandings. They think they have to respond on the exam and say the Versailles settlement was terrible, or they have to say appeasement Munich was futile. But in life, they will have to make hard choices between these things. Things won't be that simple. And to the extent that we in our writings or in our classrooms can get them to think in terms of the balance between these things, I think that's our useful. That's why I have found in recent years great fun in teaching a seminar on foxes and hedgehogs, building on Isaiah Berlin's distinction between these animals, the fox, knowing many things, the hedgehog knowing one thing, which one should you, the student, try to be? And there is no good answer for that. But there's enough interest in the question that we can spend the whole semester going through history, discussing this, applying it in situations in the past. And if at the end of the semester, I leave my students puzzled, then I've achieved what I was trying to do. I think. John, one really fascinating note in the essay that you and Hal wrote was about the way historical memory shapes the approach of policymakers in the US and elsewhere to confronting these current problems. And when we look at the Cold War, one thing that you stress is that many of the decision makers who were crafting containment and other policies and carrying out diplomacy during those years were really shaped by a memory of the wars and were, you know, brought that knowledge and that very personal visceral feel for what that war was like and what the stakes were to what became a fairly successful American policy through the Cold War. The people carrying out policy now are, you know, of a different generation. I certainly fall into this category. The memory is much more of the post-Cold War. It's not shaped in the same way. To what extent does that worry you? Does that shape the way you see American policy being made now? Well, I think it's inescapable, Dan, because if we don't rely on the past, what else do we have for guidance? (laughs) What other compass heading do we have other than the past? And there's not much. So the question is, which pasts do we consult? Do we consult the most recent or the most traumatic or the most triumphant past? Or do we expand the horizon and go back further and think more broadly? and maybe go back as far as we try to do in the grand strategy class, go back even as far as the ancient world, Thucydides, and draw lessons from that and things in between. Cherry picking, yes, it is cherry picking, but it's cherry picking with a purpose because you are looking for a series of situations which exemplify this need to balance this impossibility of finding final answers but the need to live with the discomfort of uncertainty and manage it. And I think that's what we really ought to be aiming for in our policymakers, as well as our students, some of whom will become policymakers in due course. We'll be back after a short break. As the oil market undergoes a period of rapid change, oil, the state, and war sheds light on how petrostates shape international affairs. Emma Ashford explores the many potential links between domestic oil production and foreign policy behavior by examining three types of petrostates, oil-dependent states, oil-wealthy states, and super-producer states. Through a combination of case studies and analysis, she illustrates how oil influences petrostates' behavior, filling a major gap in our understanding of the international implications of oil wealth. Oil, the State, and War is available through Georgetown University Press and booksellers. Margaret, you have written probably the definitive book about the opening to China, your book Nixon and Mao, and the moment when the U.S. capitalized on the Sino-Soviet split to make 
China a partner in opposing the Soviet Union in early 1970s. We're now at the 50-year mark from that visit and that diplomacy by Nixon and Kissinger, but also perhaps more powerfully at a moment when those dynamics seem to be going into reverse, when China and Russia are converging again, when we are facing both of them as a, if not a unified bloc, as two challengers. What, when you look back at the lessons of Nixon and Kissinger, what should we take from that episode that you think is useful today? Both Nixon and Kissinger were concerned about the position of the United States in the world, I think, as a result of Vietnam. And they were looking for ways to make the United States a pivotal power again and to balance, as John Gaddis said, between protecting the interests of the United States, but trying to work both with the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China and seeing a possibility to not play off one against another, but to use the opening to China as a way to put pressure on the Soviet Union, which was being difficult, for example, about a number of things, including arms control. And so I think what they did was take a step that was, I think, important. I think they expected quite a lot from it, but I think they were not unrealistic. And they moved, I think, very cautiously. I mean, I think it's an act of real statesmanship. And when I wrote the book, I changed my view of President Nixon, who I tended to think of as in terms of Watergate and, you know, Tricky Dick. He had a great sense of history. And I hope that the United States, which again is a pivotal power, still is a pivotal power, will have leadership capable of doing that again. One thing it seems to me that the war in Ukraine has done, and we may come to it in a minute, but it has actually put Russia in a much weaker position, than, not just in its relationship with the West, but it has made it much more dependent on China. And how the United States is going to manage that new relationship, I think, will be important. How it's going to keep in some way on terms with both countries. Is there any one kind of key insight or principle that Kissinger and Nixon brought to this that you think could help policymakers today think through this problem? They tried as much as they could to know whom they were dealing with. And in the case of both the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China, that was very difficult because both were very close societies, China, even more than the Soviet Union was. But they tried, I think, to as much as they could to understand the perspective that was seen from both Beijing and Moscow. And I do think that's important, you know, that you, of course, have your own interests, but I think you have to try and understand what the other side is afraid of, what they're thinking, in what ways can you reach them. And I think they wisely didn't expect too much. I mean, it was a, a great moment, but they understood, I think, that the relationship would take a long time to develop. They were not unrealistic about a sudden warm friendship between China and the United States. I think they recognized the importance of diplomacy and of nurturing and maintaining relationships. I think the other thing, Dan, that's very important in that situation is that they were not trying to change those countries. There was no effort to turn the Soviet Union into a democracy or China into a democracy. That was not on the agenda. They prized stability and balance over crusading. And that has been a huge dilemma, as we know, for American foreign policy, which has slid back and forth over the years between these two approaches, these two ultimate goals. And it seems to me one of the really significant issues that's going to come up as we study the post-Cold War era is to what extent did democracy promotion, well-intentioned efforts at democracy promotion, to what extent did these cause unanticipated problems that have something to do with where we are today? Putin says they did. He should know, I suppose, and I think there is some reason to think that that would be consistent with how other Russian leaders in the past might have seen these issues. But I think sometimes we are unsuccessful in looking critically enough at ourselves in this regard and at what is realistic. Can the world actually be made a democracy 
can culture be overridden to that extent and made uniform? And these are really significant questions, it seems. If I can just add, I think yeah. that is an absolutely vital point. And I think we underestimate, perhaps because we've lived in a stable world, most of us, we underestimate the value of stability, you know, and the ease with which it can be threatened and unturned, you know, that we don't have to like dealing with some of the governments that we have to deal with in the West, but if we can deal together to have a form of stability, we all benefit. John, let me bring Kennan into this set of problems for a moment before we move a bit forward in history. How do you think Kennan would confront this dual challenge of China and Russia, the focus on China as the main competitor, but growing kind of Sino-Russian bloc, and of course the war in Ukraine? What's the Kennan approach to this? Oh, he thought it was a really bad idea, the opening to China. You have to realize that George knew quite a lot about Russia. He knew a good deal about Germany. He knew relatively little about his own country, and he knew nothing at all about China. And so when Nixon and Kissinger went to China, Kennan was horrified. And he was not sure why he was horrified. Maybe it was a certain subterranean racism. Maybe it was simply an ignorance of China itself. But for whatever reason, he thought that this was a dangerous initiative. All of which shows some of the difficulties of a theoretical approach, because technically the theorists tell us Kennan was a realist. And of course, in some ways he was. And also the theorists tell us realists love to divide their adversaries and balance their adversaries. And on that one, Kennan would have understood that context within the center of the setting of Europe. We had no sense of it within the setting of China. And so this was one that he was profoundly skeptical about and remained so for the rest of his life. Would he share the sense of alarm about China's behavior in the world and its more assertive foreign policy now that you get in Washington? Or do you think he would have a more cautious view of where we are? I think he would be very alarmed. And he would say, probably would also say politely, I told you so. I want to talk a bit about Ukraine and how we understand this as a historical turning point. I think in the middle of an event as, as massive and as consequential as a war, you certainly get a kind of slew of declarations that surely this is a major historical turning point and this is a hinge of history. I'm curious how each of you see this moment. Are we likely to look back on this as an inflection point for bad or for good or ill? Do we see this as, you know, merely a, another data point in a long deterioration of global order or, you know, an exception that reinforces the norm against conquest? How do you think we will look back at this moment if we were, you know, say, having this discussion at the 150th anniversary celebration of foreign affairs? Margaret, let's start with you. Historians always hate to say how we'll look at things in the future. But I think John Gaddis said it, that, I'm sorry, I don't want to mis misquote you, but I think you said that the post-Cold War period started in 1991 and has just ended. Mm -hmm. And it's often difficult when you're living through something to fully assess it, but I think that is true. To begin with, it brought war to the continent of Europe where few people were expecting a war. And you can say that's a lack of imagination, and I blame myself for that as much as anyone else. But it has done a number of things. I think it's shown not just Putin, but it's shown others that outright conquest can take land and hold it, can become a basis. So, I mean, in some ways, we're going back to something like the 18th century in that. And I think what it's also done is force the Western countries, which of course is no longer a geographical term, but more a political and ideological term, to think about what it is they hold important and to think about how they can defend it. You know, it seems to be one of those moments where we're all having to reflect on what we're doing and what the world is looking like and, and what should we be doing. 
I think there's one other aspect of this, though, that is interesting, and here Cannon would have had very firm views. It exemplifies the dangers of authoritarian rule. Margaret is right. Russia is weaker as a result of this. In fact, Russia will be weakened by this for many years to come. It was a decision that was made in the way that many Soviet and Russian decisions have been made in the past, not consulting informed advisors, but simply the autocrats at the top making the decision. Many of them elderly are getting there very quickly. What kind of a method of governance is this? This is something Hal and I talked about in the article we did for you, Dan. Whoever said that autocrats get wiser as they age or more energetic as they get older or that their countries benefit from this aging process, whoever said that zombies can be geopolitical geniuses, and that's the fatal weakness, it seems to me, that Russia has never surmounted. To some extent, it applies in China as well, and certainly with what she is trying to do, the consolidation of authoritarian rule there. I can see why they're doing it. It's because they're nervous. It's because they're afraid, it seems to me. But at the same time, I think this is one of those few points on which history is very clear. What authoritarians can you think of who achieved what they had intended, who did not produce unintended consequences, and who died content. Absolutely. Not very many. <laughs> you know, I think there is a lot of kind of nostalgic looking towards some of the history that the two of you have written about over the course of your careers, in a sense that that kind of bold policymaking or strategy is not possible today because of changes in our politics or education or the makeup of the foreign policy world or whatever else. Margaret, let me start with you. Do you see it as more difficult to achieve the kind of statecraft and diplomatic victories that Nixon and Kissinger were able to, in the opening to China, I think even Kissinger said that it would be impossible just given how hard it is to keep things secret now to pull it off. But do you see that as a limit on the ambitions or the capabilities of statecraft and diplomacy? Unfortunately, I do. You know, I think what makes good statecraft and diplomacy possible is sometimes being able to do it confidentially and in secret. It's like any sort of negotiation. If you do it in public, negotiations between workers and bosses, you're not going to get very far because positions mm-hmm. will harden. And I think that is a problem. I think we also have a problem in that diplomacy has been downplayed. Too often, I think it's been seen as something with diplomats going to cocktail parties and in striped trousers, whatever, talking away. And I think we have misunderstood or we've forgotten how important it is to have people who know a lot about an issue or a part of the world and can advise their governments. I think we also have a problem. A lot of heads of state love summits. They love foreign policy because it gets them away from home. John, let me put the same question to you, but with respect to grand strategy, you know, we've run pieces about the end of grand strategy. Is that true? Well, no, I don't think so. I have a capacious definition, as you know, Dan, of grand strategy, that it's the balancing of unlimited aspirations against limited capabilities. And given that kind of definition, no, grand strategy is not going to go away. It's going to be with us always. But I do think uh, it's wise to keep in mind that when we talk about the distractions of media and politics and all of these things that are characteristic of democracies, this is not new. Was the domestic political scene at the time that Kennan formulated the strategy of containment, was it quiet and amicable? No, the Republicans had just taken the Congress. Truman was supposed to not know what he was doing. Communists were supposed to be infiltrating the government. You know, it was a very dicey time. 
or go back to the time of the Nixon-Kissinger trip, as Margaret says. Vietnam was going on, and part of what they were trying to do was to get us out of Vietnam, but the distractions of what was going on at that point. Think about Kent State. Think about the March on the Pentagon. Think about all of these things, and they were there as well. So it seems to me this comes to the territory. When you're a democracy, you're going to have these uh, distractions. But I don't think that precludes rising above them or maybe sequestering yourself off from them and taking imaginative new approaches. I think the key to doing that is simply to have the people in the government who can conceive of the world as round. There was a famous Herb Block cartoon about General MacArthur who was showing off a square globe. And somebody said to General MacArthur, General, we've been using a more roundish one lately. We will end on that note. Margaret McMillan, John Gaddis, a huge thank you for joining us. Couldn't have asked for a better pair to mark our 100th anniversary. Thanks to you, Dan. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs Interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming Dresser, Rafaela Seward, and Marcus Zacharia. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, and Gabrielle Sierra. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.